0: Well, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Daniel. We're going to read from Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. Um, If you're using one of the pew Bibles, it's uh, page 883. Uh, If you want to know your location in terms of Bible books, you've got Lamentations, which is a smaller book. Then you've got Ezekiel, which is a massive book. And then you've got Daniel. And then if you go beyond that, you've got Hosea, you've gone too far. So Daniel... One is where we're going to read from tonight, and Daniel's a, an interesting book. I'm going to encourage you at the start of this series to uh, read it on your own, uh, to to read it through a number of times, maybe over this week and next, just a number of times from start to finish. You'll notice that 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 it that it changes in some respects halfway through. The first six chapters are very much narrative; it's storytelling. The last six chapters. Um, are are what we would call apocalyptic literature. It's it's more prophetic in its nature. It's it's rich with symbolism, and you need to take time to grasp what is being said in there. So what we're going to do in our Daniel series is that we're going to deal with the first six chapters, and then we're going to take a break, and Andy's going to preach another short series, and then I'm going to come back after that, and we'll do another six in the apocalyptic section of Daniel. So that's, that's the plan, and that's, I hope, uh, a wee teaser for you. You'd enjoy reading it for yourselves in the coming days. Um, but we're going to begin at Daniel 1, uh, chapter 1, and here's what God's Word says. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles of the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, Young men without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Well, Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, than any of the young men who ate the royal food so the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead to these four young men God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds at the end of time The time set by the king to bring them in The chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar The king talked with them And he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah So they entered the king's service In every matter of wisdom and understanding About which the king questioned them He found them ten times better Than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom And Daniel remained there Until the first year Of King Cyrus. Amen this is God's word. (coughs) Excuse me. Well whatever the Christian history of our nation and in in the past of this we can be sure we live as aliens and strangers in this land. We are different here as Christians. In the last 100 years, we've seen a rapid decline in the number of people who claim to be Christian. You can see that in census statistics. The values of our society and the structures of society have seen a shift, really, of seismic proportions. Bill after bill and movement after movement always seem to inch further and further away from the kind of values that we read about in the Bible, the kind of values that the Lord himself cares about. And what's worse, you could say that we've begun to see something new emerge, certainly in our own nation. Almost the intolerance of those who do not hold to society's wider values. That's meant that those of us who hold to certain biblical convictions, even on hot topics like marriage and sexuality, for example, are likely to be labelled as judgmental bigots, Or religious extremists. In fact it's not too uncommon I would say. For us to even express our views. And simply by expressing them. To be accused of things like hate speech. It seems that speech is free for everyone. Except those who do not conform to society's expectations. That's a squeeze that is. Because we're not even talking about street preachers here. We're talking about the Christian boy at school who holds to the view that God created the universe. Or I'm talking about the Christian mum at the dinner party who's faced with the frowns of her friends. Because they've been talking about God and his existence and the reality of Jesus Christ. And actually the uniqueness of Jesus Christ through whom people are saved. And you can almost hear the response from the the people around the dinner table as they're drinking their coffee. How could you be so narrow-minded? What about such and such up the roads? How could you be so narrow-minded? She's such a lovely person. Well, those are just examples of the many experiences that we could share, which help us to see that living in a strange land is not an easy thing for us to do. It's actually a difficult thing for us to do it's not easy feeling like we're always out of step with those around us perhaps that's heightened for us when we realize that those people are our family members or closest friends so what are we to do uh, how are we supposed to live how does god want us to live that's a key question do we withdraw do we do we shrink back should we forget some of the friendships that we have with with non-christians around us or should we just I suppose, loosen up a little bit? Do we, do we compromise? Should we try and fit snugly, hand in glove, and seek to remove some of those distinctions? Well, fascinatingly, I think the book of Daniel helps us in answering these kinds of questions. It's amazing to think, for me, as I've studied this book, to see how a book that's written 600 years before Jesus came that it can speak with such relevance down through the centuries, even to today, to encourage you and me to think about how we not only live for God in a strange land, but to do so with confidence and encouragement and energy and trust and trust. Here's where Daniel meets us. And we're going to get stuck in straight away. The first thing I want us to see from Daniel chapter 1, in the section in verses 1 to 7. There's almost an encouragement here which which just says to us, when we're asking the question, how do we live in this land when things are difficult? Settle down and don't withdraw. Settle down and don't withdraw. If we think life in Edinburgh is hard, spare a thought for the people of God who at this time were carried into exile there's a little bit of a history lesson coming up stay with me okay it was years before i really got to grasp after becoming a christian years before i got to grasp the significance of the historical outworkings of god's people in the old testament and what that meant for us now just because i mentioned the word history a second ago doesn't mean you can switch off for the next minute or so okay you with me i'm watching i can see you all okay um So here's our historical GPS. Verses 1 and 2 locate us in time and history with a guy in particular called Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a mighty king in a brutal, in a tyrannical, in a powerful, but a super clever sort of way. From his base in Babylon, which would be nowadays Iraq, He had built an empire so big that you could easily say he ruled the world, okay? Now, Assyria used to be the big superpower until Nebuchadnezzar squashed it. And he, at this point, when we come to Daniel 1, we read he was on his way down to Egypt to add another super heavyweight title to his collection. This wee nation stood in the way. It was a nation called Judah. Not Israel, no. A hundred years prior to this moment, the nation of Israel had split into two, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom, decades before this point, had already been ransacked by the Assyrians and they were all carted off into exile. You with me? Nod your head. Okay, good. That's good. There were lots of heads. (coughs) Now, Nebuchadnezzar then was the one who later, having squashed the Assyrians, was on his way down to squash Egypt. And he came face to face with Judah and Jerusalem as a city, the so-called city of God. Now, Nebuchadnezzar took Jerusalem in three stages. Lots of us have maybe heard some of the familiar stories from the Old Testament Particularly the prophets, which talk about no stone being left on top of another, everything would be flattened. But that doesn't happen till stages two and three of Nebuchadnezzar's conquest. That's like eight and ten years after this point in Daniel 1.1. Are you with me? Touch your head. Good. Okay. But what we have here in Daniel 1 is stage 1. 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar turns up to Jerusalem with his mighty army. They surround it, encamp themselves all all around it in terms of a siege. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't have to do a thing. We don't know if they shot an arrow, what it looked like, who knows. As far as I'm aware, Nebuchadnezzar turned up and he just went, flexed flexed his muscles. Danced his pectoral muscles, and Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, says, oh, Open the gates, come on in. It was as simple as that. Jehoiakim just gave in. He became then what's called a vassal king, which basically means he's a puppet of Nebuchadnezzar. You with me? Good. Nebuchadnezzar then liked to show off. So in verse 2, we read this is what he did. He took two trophies from Jerusalem to Babylon. And these were, if you like, symbols of the victory. Even though he'd just gone and flexed his muscles, even though they hadn't killed many people at this point or flattened everything, he was taking people home. He was taking things home as trophies. First of all, articles from the temple of God. He had already taken control of the city of God. That's what he had taken the first thing. The second thing, articles from the temple of God. And did you notice from the text where these were taken and placed? In the treasure house of his God. That was highly symbolic. Not only was Judah and Jerusalem defeated, Judah's God was defeated. Is he powerful? No. How could he be powerful? If he was powerful, he would have rescued Judah, right? No. Not according to the Babylonians. They would be rejoicing at this. Judah's God was defeated their god was greater it was kind of like the the playground taunt of my dad's bigger than your dad's uh, kind of scenario the third thing that he took was people from the city of god and he took them to babylon and again this is symbolic that those who were once rulers were now ruled by nebuchadnezzar members of the royal family members of the nobility the cream of the crop with them were taken away into captivity. Now, when you stop and think about it, that's a clever tactic. Skim off the cream of the society that you've just invaded. Take the smart and the strong, harness their talents, make them so Babylonian that they forget their identity and their allegiance to their city and their people and their gods. Then they too can serve the king in his palace. That's what Nebuchadnezzar. Had planned for these guys in Jerusalem. And who's among them? Daniel and his friends. They would have to live in Babylon. Get that? Babylon. Now, if you were a Jew in that, at that time and you knew your Bible well, you would immediately think back to the Genesis account of the Tower of Babel. People who lived with this willful rejection of God. We don't need a God. We are going to build something epic here as a city. And we're going to build a tower. And people are going to look at us and say, wow, look at them. Aren't they amazing? It was a place that was synonymous with, with a people who were, self, who were full of their own self-importance. They did not think they had any need of God. In many respects, that describes Edinburgh, doesn't it? It's the very opposite of the God-centered view that God's people should have. So the question then comes up again, how on earth are they going to survive? Now, many would like to, in the book of Daniel, just rush straight to verse 8 of chapter 1, where it talks about, don't defile yourself, right? You, you, you belong to God, Daniel. And as you go there, don't defile yourself. You've got to take your stand quickly. Now that is an important principle and we'll get to that shortly. But we mustn't miss the fact that Daniel and his friends actually willingly engage in many different aspects of the culture without seeing the need to object or even excuse themselves. And there's an encouragement in here for us to make sure that we do not see the need to do that necessarily even in our city and in our time and in the face of the opposition that we feel. Don't withdraw. Verse 4 tells us that they received an education. They go to the University of Babylon. They get a state-sponsored education that is by no means merely academic. The whole point of putting them through these studies in Babylonian language and literature was to make them think and act like Babylonians, change their worldview. What do we see later in the text? Daniel passed with flying colors, but that didn't make him a Babylonian. We see also in verse 7, he seemingly accepted this name. Names are important in the Bible. A name change, sorry. Names are important in the Bible. Now, each of these men mentioned in verse 6, the four of them, all have names that contain the name of God in them. But in verse 7, their names are changed to those that have the names of Babylonian gods contained within. Yes, let's, let's rid them of any reminders of their true identity. But Daniel let them call him what they wanted. But again, that didn't make him a Babylonian. So Daniel goes to Babylon and feels the pressure to conform. But that didn't make him retreat. I mean, Daniel may well have been encouraged by a letter from Jeremiah. A letter that we read about in Jeremiah chapter 29. We all know that verse, don't we? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Now, now we rip it, kicking and screaming out of context. Oh, so many times it's ridiculous. But this, this is the true context. You see what it's written to? People in exile. People facing the pressure to conform. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. This is Jeremiah the prophet writing to these guys in Babylon. To all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses. Settle down. Plant gardens. Eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters a marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So they're being encouraged from the off. Pray for the good of the city. If it prospers, you prosper. This is what the Lord says. The letter continues. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back. So this is not the end of God's people. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will come, up, call upon me and come and pray to me. And I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. See the encouragement in there? God is at work in this situation. Don't withdraw. Don't... Start drawing lines all over the place. It's okay to engage with the culture around you. It's similar really to what we see in the New Testament. The encouragement for us even as we've seen in 1 Peter in recent months. In verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2. Live as God's people. God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the King. Nebuchadnezzar's tactics here remind us of the subtle nature of worldly temptations. It can be all too easy to engage with our culture, though, in, in a way that, that means we get seduced by it. That's not right. Or else we can become lax in our stance on biblical doctrines. And when the worldviews of the world around us clash with our own, well, it exposes what we really think. And what we really hold on to. And we might be tempted to relax on some of those things. Especially when there is a clash with those that we love and value. But Daniel is an encouragement for us. In the first instance, not to withdraw but to settle down. To go and participate in the world. To serve wholeheartedly. Even in places that aren't explicitly Christian. Even as Daniel shows us. Even in government. (laughs) Anywhere. Jesus is the one himself. Who said. In John chapter 17. As he prays for us. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So you see what the Lord Jesus is praying for his followers? He's not praying for us to withdraw. We we can quite enjoy our Christian huddles, can't we? We live in what's I suppose you could describe it as like a rabbit warren Christianity. Christians who are rarely seen because they're just kind of popping their heads up and dashing from burrow to burrow. But no, we are called to and be encouraged to be involved with a qualified participation in the life of the world around us. So be encouraged. You don't have to be in a specific ministry role, a paid gospel ministry to be operating for God. Uh, Far from it. There are many times when I am, in the right sense of the word, envious of those who have so much contact with unbelievers in the workplace. It's certainly something we should be praying for with each other and for one another, that we might engage well. Daniel's an encouragement to us not to withdraw, but to settle down and live well, to not conform to the world around us, to the city in which we live, but to retain our distinctiveness, and that's what we go on to. It's why it's important enough not just to withdraw, but to set clear boundaries secondly, and don't compromise. This is what we see in verses 8 to 16. Daniel's resolve was that he would draw a line. Wisdom helped him to know where to draw it. And in what circumstance? It's fascinating to me that Daniel starts with something so small, actually. In verse 8, the story slows down. That tells us that in narrative, this bit's important. And Daniel, we see, resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine that was assigned from the king himself from the table. Well, why is this? We're not quite sure. It could be something to do with Babylonian meat being sacrificed to idols. Or it could be that eating from the king's table was was seen as a sign of covenant loyalty to the king but Daniel would only pledge allegiance to the one true king the Lord himself in any case it has something to do with his faith and his view of his cleanness if you like before God because he uses the word defiled the word defiled is in here twice in this verse people who defile themselves become unclean and in their uncleanness cannot come before God and Daniel doesn't want that But this is courageous, this act. By drawing a line, by refusing this food from the the royal table. And resolving not to cross this line that he had drawn. He could be executed for this. Certainly even the person he approached, the chief official, was fearful of his own head being lost at his request. But in any case, he's showing... He is staying, sorry, true to his own conscience. True to his own conscience and true to the very things that he holds as true and important and vital for his relationship with the Lord. And this is important for us as we engage with our own culture. When it comes to relationships and sex and money and occupation, roles, uh, what you'll drink in the pub, whatever it is, I wonder if you've ever considered, have I I drawn a line anywhere in particular? Is there a line that I will not cross? Have I, by taking what the Bible teaches, drawn a particular boundary somewhere and resolved not to cross it? This is what Daniel resolved. He'd obviously thought about it and made a decision. Then he set his heart on something and he stuck to it. But my fear is that at times too many of us find ourselves in situations where we've never really thought about where we draw the line. We find ourselves almost in the grip of naivety in a situation and having to make decisions on the hop. But we would do well to consider the various realms of our lives, of relationships. What, you know how we, how we relate to friends, where we will go with them, what we will do in their company and so on. Or how we will spend our money. How we will spend our time. Have you thought about where are the lines that you have drawn in your Christian life? Fully informed by the Bible, of course. Not just haphazardly pulled together. Think about that. Consider those things. But don't just think about where you draw the line. When it comes to the, the, the point where you may be confronted or you may be in discussion with people about the line that you have drawn or trying to explain why you will not cross this particular boundary, take a note of Daniel's manner as well. This is just imp- as impressive as his resolve. He wasn't loud mouthed. He wasn't harsh. He was gentle and respectful and showed deference to the chief official. When he asked him if he would have permission to not defile himself with the king's food. And even then with the guard. He even starts. How polite. Verse 12. Please, (laughs) please test your servants for 10 days in this. And even when you take into account the chief official saying no," Daniel going a couple rungs below him was was, was careful yet wise, and he asked the steward for the same thing he wasn't sh- the steward himself wasn 't sure what to do so. Daniel, even in a right manner, in a humble attitude, tentatively said, okay, let's give it a 10-day trial, t- trial. See how it goes. Compare our appearance with the other men who eat the royal food and then treat your servants in accordance with what you see. He didn't go in all guns blazing. He went insensitively. He would resolve to not cross the line that he had drawn, but he wasn't going to be harsh about it. And then we see Daniel's faith, of course. He had great expectation. He believed that God would honor his desire to be faithful to him. He wouldn't have made this suggestion otherwise. But friends, in the same way, we must be those who certainly are encouraged not to withdraw, but to settle down, to engage with those in our culture, to be in contact with the world around us, the people around us. But to set boundaries and not to compromise these things. We must not be tempted to compromise when someone or some situation requires us to cross a line we have drawn. We too, like Daniel, must be resolute. But we can be gentle and respectful and full of faith in those moments. And what makes Christians distinctive in this world is really this kind of thing is that they do not conform to the world and its standards but remain faithful to God that might mean for the person in the workplace that, that you will not sign off on a trade deal or something like that that might require some compromise like lying about figures there are many and varied illustrations that you could use But once we have drawn this line, we must resolve not to cross it and remain true to the standards we have set. Now, interestingly, the passage ends with faithfulness, with God being faithful to his people and setting them in a place of favor. It's so tempting as we read through this book to view Daniel as the hero in all of these stories. Don't get me wrong, we can look to Daniel as one of the heroes in the faith and we can draw many, many moral examples and encouragements from from how they conducted his life and how many others conducted their lives. But that's not really the main point of the book of Daniel and shouldn't be the main point of these sermons. Because actually the main point of this whole passage is to recognize that God is sovereign and we can trust him. That's what verses 17 to 20 highlight for us. That God is working out his purposes. If we could have the next slide, please. In every section of this chapter, what you find is the secret sovereignty of God's at work. And I say secret because... Many of the players, if you like, in this passage don't actually see it for themselves. But God is behind it all and God is in all. Three times in the passage we see God giving something. In verse 2 we read, what well, we've just read in verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar came, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Then what do we read? And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So you see what this is saying? Nebuchadnezzar took But God gave. That's why we must always view our adverse circumstances, friends, through eyes of faith. Not just of plain sense. And in verse 9, God is the one who causes the officials to have favor on Daniel. And in the end... Well, we know because of the run of the story that he's the one who made them look healthier and better nourished than those who were having their fill from the king's table. And then in verse 17, the third instance, we see that God gave these men wisdom with the result that at the end of their training, when they stand the test, they take their examination before Nebuchadnezzar, they're not just top of the class. They're ten times better than everybody else. Nebuchadnezzar can't wait to employ these guys in his service. And as we see, Daniel will be there throughout. Why? Is it just because Daniel's resolve and his manner that he didn't withdraw, but he settled down? Is it because, quite simply, he set boundaries and didn't compromise? Well, no, the king didn't know anything about that drawing of the line. It's because God is at work. And in Daniel 1, the losers in the beginning, carried off into captivity, have by the wonderful twists of God's providence become the winners. And Nebuchadnezzar still thinks he's in control. (laughs) Three times, God gave, God gave, God gave. Who is in control? the Lord. He is exercising control, authority, and presence, three distinguishing marks of his sovereignty. He is in control, working out his purposes, implementing his will. He's the authority to do it. He has the power to do all that he says and cannot be overridden. And he has the presence that accompanies that control and that authority. A presence that is manifested either in blessing or in judgment. God is exercising his sovereignty in the lives of these people and in the movement of nations. Now do you start to see who's a real hero in the story of Daniel? Daniel. Now do you start to see what it is that will really help God's people live in a strange land that is not their own? It's not just by setting boundaries, though that is vital. It's by trusting God and His sovereignty that He is in control. To the extent in this passage that we see in verse 21 what another GPS marker Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. You'll see this as we go through. That's four kings stroke empires later. Nebuchadnezzar rose and fall. Belshazzar rose and fell. All of the kings will rise and fall. Who remains? Daniel. Why? Because God is in control. And as he promised in Jeremiah 29 in his letter to the exiles, I'm going to bring you back. Because I'm faithful to my promises to preserve a Messiah king from the people of God who will redeem his people, and not only his people, but people from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue. God is at work, God is in control. So what difference then does it make, Does the sovereignty of God make in our lives as we live as aliens and strangers in this world in the face of church decline, in the face of mockery, in the face of abuse in the classroom for holding to certain views on, on creation or in society around the dinner table when we hold to certain views on human sexuality and what marriage is and isn't and the like? What difference does the sovereignty of God make in our lives when we see bill after bill and movement after movement being pushed through Parliament with overwhelming majorities? We don't withdraw, we settle down. We set boundaries we do not compromise and we trust that every step of the way God is in control God is in control that's the difference it makes let's bow our heads together in fact let's not bow our heads yet can I have the next screen up please let's take some time to respond we meditate on Daniel 1 I wonder what, these are different sections of the things that we've been thinking about tonight. And I wonder if there are any struggles that you know in your life. Maybe your struggle is with disengagement. Why don't you meditate on these words from John 17 of Jesus' prayer. Not that he would, we would be taken out of the world, but protected in the world. Maybe you're, Maybe you struggle to engage with people in our society and... Build relationship with non-Christians as God expects you to in order to live a healthy witness for him. We're to be salt and light after all. What use of salt if it's not in contact with the corrupting carcass of the world? Maybe that's a struggle for you. Why don't you pray in response to that? Ask God for help to build relationships in our city that God might use for his glory. On the other hand, maybe at the other end of the spectrum, your struggle is with compromise. Maybe you find it all too easy to go with the crowd. Maybe you find it all too easy to dive into the latest fad or fashion or you find yourself plunging into the same kind of things that your friends plunge into. Maybe you would spend time thinking about Romans 12. Where we are urged in view of God's mercy to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him. And to hear the words, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Maybe you struggle to know at times where to draw the line. Maybe Galatians 5 will help you. which a passage which tells us this, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. It's a starting point for you. Here are some things, some lines that you can draw, that you can resolve. I will not cross this. I'm going to draw this line and I will not cross it. Or maybe your struggle is with trust. Maybe you look at things going on in the world around us. Things that happen on a world scale. And you've got questions and doubts about whether God really is in control of all of this. Maybe your questions are very personal and rooted in specific situation that you're going through just now, you're wondering whether God is really in control of the very thing that you're experiencing at this time, maybe Proverbs 3 would help trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. We'll take a few minutes to respond in quietness. Let's pray.